0: How can decades going backwards in a rowing boat prepare you for professional life? Olympian Dame Catherine Granger has won five Olympic medals, including a gold at the London Olympics in 2012 with her rowing partner, Hannah Watkins. When you've reached these peaks so early, how do the skills you've learned in your sporting life transfer to life in the boardroom? Hello, I'm Michael Barber. Welcome to Accomplishment. In this episode, I'm looking at the pattern of success in elite sport and how training prepares you for a job in the real world. Dame Catherine Granger has spent many, many hours on the water in boats and in gyms, preparing intensely to put on her best performance in just six and a half minutes, the time it takes to row 2,000 meters. I spoke to her before she went to the Tokyo Olympics about the medals she won and their relevance to the rest of her life. She started by telling me about London 2012. Catherine and her partner Anna are at the London Olympics in front of a very passionate home crowd.
1: I remember us sitting at the start line and you have to be there about five minutes before the race time starts. And that five minutes is kind of the strangest, quietest can be almost emotionally kind of overwhelming moment because there's nothing left to do and there's nothing left to say and you sit in the start line waiting and you know you're because it's an outdoor sport, you're aware of the wind, you're aware of the weather, you're aware of everything else, and you're focused on the umpires starting the race. And they call over the the six different nations. And we were lane five. So they called each one. They got to Great Britain lane five. And we heard this noise and it and at that point didn't realise what it was never heard it before and then they went on to lane six and went to start the race and we realised later that the noise we heard after our name announcement was actually the sound of the crowd 2,000 metres away roaring just just in the the announcement of the word Great Britain the, this crowd spontaneously sort of cheered so you kind of you know you're aware of what this race means to so many people but for us it was trying to keep it very simple and very focused and you know the the start happens rowing's one of those strange sports that you go backwards so it does it does mentally help to have a fast start and anna and i had a fast start and so you get out ahead and it means you can kind of look behind you can look behind and see the, the race unfold as well and i remember the most important thing was in that very emotional state in that very sort of passionate high intensity moment could we find the right rhythm? You know, rowing is a lot about rhythm. It's all about your timing and rhythm and coming together. And the biggest risk to us, would, would we would we overcook it? It meant so much to us that race, would we overwork it? But we got into the right rhythm. We got into the right pace. Uh, we kind of started moving out on the on the rest of the field as we hoped and wanted
0: to. And you've obviously been practicing this many, many times, but but to actually make it happen in a race is a different thing.
1: I think as well with the, with the home crowd experience, with the, the home games, sort of pressure and intensity, everything was heightened. The Olympic Games heightens everything anyway. It's a more emotional. It's very strange. It's not just physically hard, but it's emotionally very testing. The biggest thing was, we'd done this a thousand times, but could we do it on that day, in that moment?
0: You've started, you get into your rhythm. Are you in the lead right from the beginning?
1: Yeah, we were in the lead from the beginning. Our biggest opposition on the day was going to be Australia. As, as you would hope in great opposition and especially Australian opposition, they had talked very publicly about they were coming to, do, to ruin the party. They were coming to beat, you know, the home favourites on the home ground. So we kind of knew the challenge would come from the lane next to us in Australia. And what was impressive was we led the whole way down the course. We led from start to finish, and so Australia was always second to us. But they never, they never relented for one stroke. They there was no point where it felt comfortable. Or it felt fine. We were we were extending our lead, and we were in a like I said, in a comfortable place. But it always felt there was a risk. There was always a threat. Were sitting there next to
0: us. But presumably for a long time. There wasn't clear water between you and them. So so at what point did you get far enough ahead where you can see them behind you?
1: Probably by about halfway, we began to pull out, you know, uh, with a bit of space of water. I remember being asked afterwards, the three of us, our coach and Anna and myself, when do you think you'd won the race? And our coach actually said, you know, within about five strokes. And we thought, there's no way, because he's never that positive. How can it possibly be that early? But his point was exactly you know what I'd said was his biggest concern for us was actually not our opposition, but was ourselves would we would we cope with it? Would we be able to you know cope in that pressure and if he saw us within ten strokes hitting the right rhythm, hitting the right pace, he was confident we could win the race. so he thought very early on, and I thought she always says by about halfway. You know, she's very mathematical brain. She's very scientific how she views things, and she calculated instantly the gap we had to Australia, the gap we had over the rest of the field, how we were feeling, how how efficient we were in our rowing, and she kind of very quickly saw all that and thought, "Yep, yeah, we'll be fine. We'll make it to the end, and we'll win it." And I thought about one stroke after the finish line, <laughs> we'll win it because I That's sure so didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to ever. Think we've got it
0: sorted. yet. So, can you tell me about that moment of winning? So, when you know you've won that one stroke after the the the, the race winning line, you're obviously totally exhausted because you've been rowing flat out for six and a half minutes. But you've won the greatest triumph of your career. How, what's the feeling at the moment of winning?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that that sport sort of magnifies: is that split second difference between winning and losing. So, you cross the line and you win, then. Every bit of exhaustion goes. I mean, you are overwhelmed with elation and joy and relief and all the positive emotions flood you. So you feel instantly energized. You know, we were Anna and I were arms aloft, you know, waving to the crowds, hugging each other. Yeah, you know, didn't feel didn't feel in any way exhausted. You cross the line a split second later in second place, which I have done in other times in my career, utter exhaustion hits you. You know, just drained of everything so that you know that that's part of the emotional difference of that winning losing moment
0: yeah and you'd had three silver medals in previous olympics so did this feel extra special like because you had that feeling as a the elation as opposed to the exhaustion
1: yeah uh, partly because i'd been there and sort of lost before partly because you know after such a long period of time it was my fourth games it meant so much to me you know that final opportunity to get on the top step of the podium and especially in london in front of a home crowd had had built up to mean kind of it would it would define my career it would define me in so many ways and it and it felt like an, an incredible sort of quest to be that good and and so it, it it was that's why i wouldn't let myself believe it until we crossed the line because i knew what it would mean as and when we did it and i kind of didn't know how i'd cope with that
0: so if you're an ordinary British citizen, as I was through those games, you watch this on television. Of course, you're patriotic and you're thrilled that Britain's won. And you think, wow, those people worked really hard for six and a half minutes. But actually, you've worked for four years to do this. Can you, can you just give some flavour of the degree of what that preparation, that relentless attention to your fitness and your style and the rhythm that was so crucial? Just talk, talk me through that a little bit.
1: People see the last few minutes of this four-year journey, but it does start sort of four years earlier, and you, you know, you sort of commit mentally, emotionally, and physically to the task ahead. And it starts, you know, the first day of the Olympiad when you first go down to the rowing shed, and and you know, usually it's turning into winter and it's getting dark, and you kind of lift the boat off the the rack and put it in the water and there's not one person there. No one's interested, no one wants to know and uh, everyone else has got their own lives happily going on. And, you know, usually under the cover of darkness, you set off on the lake and you, you're know you building up to a point in four years' time and rowing's a one of the stranger sports in that there's very few competitions you actually compete in over the four years. It's, you have one world championships a year, you maybe have three or four World Cups is as, as events leading up to that and that's it. So, you know, for the vast, vast majority, it's just training. It's training in the gym, it's training on the rowing machine, it's training lifting weights, it's training in the boat, it's trying to sort of physically perfect yourself and technically perfect yourself and mentally prepare yourself and tactically become the best you can at decision making in under pressure and It's just constant
0: building, 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 testing, building, building, testing for four years. And Dave Brailsford, who you know from the British cycling team and uh, and Team Sky and now Team Ineos, he has this phrase about the cyclists who he picks for the Tour de France each each year. They have to sign up for their goal of winning the Tour de France, but they also, in his words, have to sign up for the suffering. Is that a bit the same? Sounds like it is for rowing.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's not many sports that, that, you know, would see themselves as being particularly glamorous. It's hard graft. It's, it is just hard work. And you know, the road may or may not end in the fairy tale. For most people, they, you know, they don't get that result. And you also know, even if you get it, that the journey there will be difficult. The journey there will have, be packed with disappointments and ups and downs. And you were trying to get yourself to a place that even you don't always you know believe is going to be possible and you are pushing yourself all the time and most of the time not that it's failure but there's always a sense of it needs to be better there's always this drive to improve and this relentless sort of you can never be complacent you never think you've got it right you never think you're good enough even if you're winning it needs to be better it needs to keep being better so there's this sort of restless sort of sense of constant improvement and that's exhausting in its own right
0: Did you and Anna decide quite early in that four-year cycle that your goal was to win the gold or did you just think we'll be the best we possibly can and then we've got a good chance of winning the gold? How was that psychologically?
1: We'd never raced and competed together but we had both won Olympic medals in different boat classes and we were the top two athletes in the team and we kind of thought the potential was enormous if we got together to compete together and we were actually very similar in the way we thought and the way we wanted to Very different strengths, but similar in what we felt we could achieve. And we felt if, you know, we got this right, we would be the best in the world. And so for us, it was about, it's a strange mix. hard to explain really. We, We kind of wanted to be the best we possibly could. We wanted to be the fastest we possibly could. And we felt if we could be the fastest we would, we'd be the best in the world. So that would be physically defined by a gold medal. So yes, of course, it was about winning the gold, but we knew... We'd almost achieve that by being by meeting our potential.
0: How do you get that synchronicity that you see in a great rowing team, whether it's an eight or a two or a four?
1: You know, when you look at a boat moving at its maximum speed, however, you know, if it especially if it's eight people or four people or two, you kinda of want to it should look absolutely seamless. It should look just, you know, almost machine-like in in perfect synchronicity. And you know, that's part of the reason it takes hours and hours and hours and hours of, of rehearsal and practice. And I think with Anna and myself, we were probably naturally suited. We had, you know, very similar height and range. So, you know, a lot of it is angles and and reach and things, the sort of technical side of it. And they were very naturally suited and matched up. And then the rhythm is the sort of, there's a real feel to a boat. And, you know, rowers will talk about how the boat feels and it's quite hard to explain or understand, but when it's good, it's extraordinary. And when it's bad, it's painful. (laughs) And, you know, we've all been in boats that the rhythm's not quite right or, you know, the people aren't quite naturally together and it becomes very difficult. You're fighting each other rather than working together. Um, But to find it, a lot of it is, a lot of it is time together. A lot of it is just talking it through or, or feeling for it, making adjustments, making changes. I mean, that's where a coach really helps, you know, the outside eye as well. You know, we fed in all the time of how it felt to us and how it should be. And the coach can come in with a slightly different perspective, saying this is how it looks, this is what you could try. Um, But you do a lot of, you know, different intensities, different speeds, different, always testing it, see at what point it might fall apart, at what point. So when it comes to the big moment, when it comes to the, the London final, you're sitting there and it's almost... Purely instinctive. We should just be so natural, our rhythm that even under that pressure, under that stress of twenty twelve, and delivering the ultimate result, the most natural thing we would find is our our own rhythm. And we both knew it when we found it, and it was it was sort of part of us. It was you know, it's a bit like how you write or how you walk. You don't think about it; it just comes. And we'd done so much training together that it it was our. It's like a, your natural fingerprint.
0: It's what it's what's part of you by then. Did you do any what you might call intelligence on either? what the opposition might be like and what their weaknesses were. Or on, you talked about the boat, on technological developments that might improve an oar or or the way the boat was designed or any, any little technical details. That would be vital to Lewis Hamilton with a car, obviously, but your boat is pretty important as well, isn't it?
1: I mean, it's less than in a lot of sports, mainly because there's a bit like they've actually done with Formula One, There's sort of a a limit to how many people make boats that are, you know, that competitive in the rowing world. There's not a huge public market beyond it. So there's not a huge amount of money in boat building in the same way as some of the the other forms of um, when you're in, in boats or cars or anything else. And then there's also a kind of rule about the boat you use at the Olympics has to be available in the open market. So you couldn't suddenly rock up with something that was, you know, never been seen before and suddenly was going to gain you 10 seconds. And in a way, you know, it was good and it felt that although we had the best boat we could and we had the boat that was suited to us, the boat would not be the decisive factor in our racing. But within the, the rules, we tried to get the fastest boat we could and we did look at the oars of, it's quite a bit about sort of streamlining and um, there's different theories behind, can you put things on the oars that sort of break the wind resistance, you know, as the oar goes through the air or is it better to be completely smooth or the angle of the, the actual we call it the spoon, the bit that goes into the water, the angle of that should it be bigger, should it be smaller. So, there's a lot of theories behind technical advancements. And we did look into all of those, and you can measure them just
0: with a stopwatch about what's making the difference and what's not. And now I want to take you to after you've won, not that moment of elation, but maybe a few days, a few weeks later, or after your career's finished. I've read quite a lot about sports people, actually people in other fields altogether, where they have this high moment of achievement and then. After that, everything feels a bit disappointing. Some people get very gloomy if you read Mm -hmm. Boris Becker's Reflections, for example, or or Kelly Holmes, who I've talked to about this. So just tell me about how you come to terms with having done that, but not likely to do it again.
1: The first few days, weeks, even months after, I think were unreal and felt quite artificial, but it was because it was 2012 you know, if I'm honest, because the, the sort of country at the time and the feel at the time and the spirit at the time was, it it was quite, I mean, looking back now, it, it was such a m- moment in time for so many people. I think we stayed on a high for a very, very long time. And I remember meeting somebody in December, so around the end of the year, talking about 2012 and sort of saying, how long did you stay that, on that high? How long would you feel that good? And I remember pausing and then saying, Oh, I've not come down yet. You know, this this was like four months later and I was still elated. We almost needed the clock to change. You almost needed to go into 2013 to to step forward because, you, I mean, in a, in a joyous way, but we were slightly stuck in time in 2012 because there were so many celebrations. You know, there was all the incredible bus parades and different cities celebrating it and the gold post boxes and so much sort of spilled over for so long. As, as a country celebrated, you know, a success for all of us. So that was, I think, I think the post-win went on a lot longer than, than it, if it had
0: been anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and then I know from your history that you you went on to win another medal in, in Rio. And even before you retired from rowing, you took on a job at Oxford Brooks University as the Chancellor and then more recently you moved to Glasgow as Chancellor. What you learned from how to win at rowing, in what ways is that if at all, relevant to being chancellor of Oxford Brookes University or Glasgow University?
1: I mean, it's an interesting question because from the outside, you think there's there's no real relevance or no real connection. And yet what I found in all the roles I've done since being an athlete is, I suppose the incredible thing is when you're an athlete, it's always about this sort of drive to, the goals are very clear. You're trying to achieve, you're trying to sort of master something and, and you're very the goals are very laid out. Um but what you don't what I didn't appreciate at the time was everything I was learning and everything I was becoming while I was trying to achieve those goals. And what I didn't dream of and which I'm thankful every day for is all how how incredible those life lessons were while I was an athlete that then carried over into everything I do now, every single thing I do now. I mean even going through you know, the issues we're having with the, with the pandemic and, and different challenges that everyone's facing. A lot of my coping mechanisms come from what I learned as an athlete. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't conscious of it at the time. It's just, so when I, you know, when we were talking about how do you move on as well, I, one of the more sobering things after London was being interviewed and being asked, you know, how does it feel to have had your greatest achievements in your life now behind you? And, you know, when you're in your sort of mid-30s, you're thinking, oh my goodness, if that's true, I've got a long, slightly depressing life ahead. <laughs> you know, it's very hard to ever compete with the moment being on the top step of an Olympic podium. I'll never have that sort of feeling again. But it doesn't mean that the best is behind me. I actually want to take on things that will still challenge and stimulate and excite me in different ways. And part of the, when Oxford Brooks approached me about being a chancellor, you know, it came completely out of the blue. I was following in a, a line of, incredible people that had gone before me, some really impressive names, and especially from the sort of legal world. Um, and I had finished my PhD in law, but I had never really worked in law. It was sort of quite thrilling to take on a role that I you know, wasn't, wasn't particularly confident in, wasn't quite sure I'd be able to do it, trying to live up to the incredible people who'd gone before me, um, very eminent names. And thinking, well, I'll be bringing something different, but I'll need to see if if that's enough. It's a wonderful privilege of a role. It's very people-based, which I love. And it's, you know, whether you're around students around the time of when they're starting university or graduating, there's a real relationship building thing, which I think as an athlete, you realise is absolutely crucial to success, is being able to work with others and being able to bring out the best in others and bring out the best in yourself to help others as well. And I think the roles is Chancellor it is a figurehead role it is a sort of public facing role but it's also it's kind of about how how you are as a person it's important the style of person you are and the integrity you have and the the values you have and and they help you work with the people who are part of that university and you they should take pride in
0: in the the sort of leadership roles i was very struck by what you said about not getting into the mindset of thinking well the best in my life is already behind me and I'm only 35 or whatever it was. I remember an interview with Michael Owen in the Times, probably in about 2007, so eight or nine years after he scored that brilliant goal in Argentina as an 18-year-old. And the interviewer said to him, what do you think about when you see that goal? And he said, I've never watched it. And the interviewer said, why didn't you watch it? And he said, because you have to believe that the best is still ahead of you. Now, in footballing terms, for him, actually, um, he'd won the 2001 Cup Final or whatever, but but the best at that point wasn't any longer ahead of him. But the idea that you have to believe that the best is still ahead of you, and you've taken that attitude and then applied it into other fields. Can I ask you about your role at UK Sport? You've been chair of it for three and a, a bit years now. Are there very specific ways in which that athletic success applies in there?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a role that, um, you know, when I was thinking of the what next moment that every athlete has to inevitably go through at the end of their career, and I didn't have anything mapped out, I didn't have an obvious step, I didn't sort of have a, a role that I had in mind, and this role became available. And when I applied for it, I still thought, realistically, I won't I won't get it. I just, you know, went through the process of applying to try and get myself in the mindset that I will now need to be in a job rather than being an athlete, because I felt it was a big leap for me. And although I I could bring a lot from having been an athlete, because it brings a level of credibility to a role that is in high-performance sport, I thought, you know, the the, the other skills of being a chair, you know, I, I, I'd I sat on boards, I'd sat on charities, but I'd never chaired anything nearly this, this size. So I thought that's, it's a big risk, taking someone who's inexperienced in that level into this role. And I think at the time what I came with and when I was sort of successful in the interview stage was the the idea, I bring the sort of frontline experience of having across 20 years competed as part of the Olympic team. I've seen it grow from before there was really funding into sort of what it is now and how successful it is now. And okay, I might not have the skills that a chair, an experience chair would come with, but I believe I I think the thing is in that that you get good at, you get good at learning. You get good at you know, you're not afraid to learn and fail and learn and be better and improve. And that constant improvement helped. So when I took on the chair role, I was really honest with everyone around, you know, everyone in the organization and saying, you know, I'm gonna be learning on my feet on this. I'm gonna learn as I go and I will, you know, need help and support. I'm not I don't have too much of an ego to admit that, but I will be bringing everything else I can with me and I will be bringing things that, you know, not everyone will, would have been able to, other things you can't learn. So the joy of being an athlete is, you know, that experience you can't really teach until you've done it. So I think the, the cheer role was great because again, it was a challenge. I needed a challenge. I needed something that was going to scare me a little bit. And, you know, would feel big enough that a bit back to that, I don't want the best being behind me. I want to feel I'm taking on something that's so big and so challenging. This could be the best thing, you know, ahead of me now. And it will take everything a bit back to that. I want to be the best I can at this. And that will take so much. I will need to be better than I am now to be good at this job. And that was part of the attraction.
0: And who Chelsea wore. Uh, who is a performance director at UK Sport about the um the London to Rio cycle and she has this thing about which you just um talked about uh, your goals aren't big enough unless they're a bit scary. Elite sport does drive that kind of thinking. You actually want to take on something that scares you because that will bring the best out in you. So that's one lesson. And then you've got a lesson uh, that that applied in the universities and applies here. I'm sure about relating to people and a, a, a lesson about being willing to learn consistently. One of the most difficult things you must have been through in the last year, we've all been dealing in different ways with the challenges of COVID-19, and suddenly there isn't going to be a Tokyo Olympics in 2020 because the deadlines, you know, you've been through all those Olympics, you know exactly what it's like, you know the date, you're going to have to row the best you've ever rowed in your life. How did did that feel for you? But also, more importantly, it must have been really quite devastating for the athletes, obviously not just the British ones, but all over the world. Was Was that really awful?
1: Yeah, I think that it was so unnerving because if, you know, if you are an athlete in, in an Olympic or Paralympic sport, the one thing you sort of are trained into is this, you know, the Olympic and Paralympic dates are kind of set in stone. They are engraved in granite. They're not going anywhere so that you need to be ready for them. You can't delay them. You can't postpone them. You can't shift the deadline a little bit. You know, they are coming and they are coming, you know, seven years in advance. We know the, the host city. And the country are going to, you know, the dates get put in very early. You can say when your final is going to be, tickets are sold. You know, everything is counting down. This is not going to shift. This is set in stone. And a way that gives you a certainty of, I need to be ready for that point. So when, at the end of March in 2020, when there was talk about, actually, (laughs) maybe it will have to change. Uh, And and if the first time ever, you know, in all our lifetimes, it was sort of cancelled and then postponed there was sort of this suddenly you know it feels like suddenly you're standing on rather than this granite block of certainty there was sands were shifting underneath you and suddenly anything can change and anything could happen and the certainties we expected have gone and you know people experience that in every aspect of life it wasn't just in sport but the, this sort of huge event suddenly shifted and I think what I mean it's <laughs> not just in our world of Olympic and Paralympic sports every world but the 2020 we had all mapped out and you know I'd all my summer was full of the dates I'd be in Tokyo and when I'd be at what events and who I'd be with. And the whole build-up to that, suddenly, you know, the whole thing got taken away. Every single day in the diary went. And for the athletes, there was this sudden, I think, initial relief because there was this, can we really train through this? You know, people, you know, gyms were shut and people were getting ill and there was a nervousness in the country and I don't think we should still be training. So actually when it... When it got stopped and postponed, there was a relief, and then there was the reality of, "Can I go for another year, and will it definitely happen next year, and what does the next few months look like for me, and can I train again and where where can I train, and will it be safe and I think yeah, I think people can do it we adapt to change much better than we think, and we can get used to anything, but uncertainty is the hardest thing to live with, and they sort of not sure. so I think the thing that helped was as soon as the new dates were put in for twenty twenty one there was kind of that, OK, now, I've got, now I know what I'm dealing with at least. I may or may not decide to go. I may or may not want to commit to another year. But now I know these are the options I have in front of me. But when there's this will it, won't it speculation, then it's very hard to kind of work with. And that was the
0: hardest bit for a lot of athletes. And so as an organisation and, and US as chair, you've had to be really quite flexible mentally to deal with that. And presumably one of the things that will affect Olympic performance is how well countries sport organisations like yours adapt in these extraordinary and very difficult circumstances. There must have been some very difficult decisions to make there.
1: Yeah, there were. And and obviously in, in a time that no one, you know, there's no sort of roadmap through any of this. There's no kind of this is what we've done before. So it was all learnings. Um, but I think the first thing, the very immediate reaction is obviously, are people OK? So the the first thing is, you know, are the athletes OK? Have they got everything they need? Have they got the support they they would want because obviously it's not just that the games get taken away but the the normal structures they work in have gone as well you know they weren't they weren't they weren't together they weren't supported they weren't in the normal teams in that way they weren't seeing each other they, um, so there was kind of immediately what what do people need what do people what support can we give what communicate? you know a lot of it is about information what information can we share and give to give some people some knowledge And then, you know, we then we worked with the actual organization itself, which sports are now going to be in financial trouble, which sports are going to, you know, a lot of things had changed. A lot of, you know, people were going to host events, couldn't host events. What does this mean for memberships had been changed? You know, so many different things were affected. So there's a lot of let's find out the facts. Let's find out where people are up to. What do people need? What do we need to address first? You know, the, the reality is everyone in the country, everyone in the world is facing some challenges right now. And the people who will do the best will the people who, you know, adapt the fastest and mentally kind of get themselves in the right place that they can to deal with this and realise that you know there's, not, there's a limit to what you can control, there's a limit to what we can change. So actually, how are you going to be the best coming out of this? And that's back to the athletes of at the end of the day, you still have got to expect to deliver your performances in the summer of 2021. What do you need to be your best there? Because... We can't change what's gone wrong. We can't change the challenges we all have going forward. But but how can you still be at your best, considering we're in that world now?
0: In my own role, uh, chairing the agency that oversees the universities, we, we've been through many of those. I and mean, that's a different sector, but the pressures are similar. Um, and I was very struck by what you said, because it's the same with us, that you end up dealing with details you never thought you'd ever think about. Like, what does social distancing look like in a science lab or... Uh, how do you get digital teaching and learning that uh, works even where a student might have weak Wi-Fi or what do you do in those? All of that. And we've been through all that detail. I actually find it all quite heartening because people are exactly, as you say, they're better at adapting to these ch- challenges than you might think in advance and p- probably than you feel in advance. And when you see them, actually, the vast majority of universities in this country have done a fantastic job in very difficult circumstances. I've finished asking the questions I want to ask Catherine. Is there anything you... Wish I'd asked, that I haven't asked, or anything you want to say on the themes we've talked about.
1: I, I was just getting going. I was like, oh, there's so much to talk about. Um, I still find interesting how much I... I don't. I think most athletes would say, you know, when you're an athlete, you think you're just an athlete. And as wonderful as it is, you still think you're an athlete. So when, when you come to the end of it, I remember writing my CV and being really scared about, I'm going to write a CV that will say, you know, for 20 years... I sat in a boat going backwards wearing a bit of lycra and I don't know how many jobs that'll get me ready for. And I actually needed to work with somebody else who was very, very good. Um, You know, who who was part of our Institute of Sport that supports all the athletes. And they just sat, they sort of made me talk through what, you know, what I did as an athlete and what kind of roles I had as an athlete and suddenly drew out all these other skills and attributes and things I'd learned and, uh, you know, you realise they're endless. So actually it gave me a lot of confidence writing a CV um, that I was more than just sat in a boat going backwards. And then I realised it sort of constantly surprises me how much unconsciously I, all those things I learned as an athlete get me through all the challenges I face now. And, you know, it's wonderful. It's so rewarding and it's not something I thought I didn't think at all as an athlete I would you sort of feel I'll be an athlete and then I'll be done and then I'll go on and be something else but actually the personality the, the skills, the attributes whatever it is that you that are enhanced as you're an athlete they don't just come because you're an athlete but they are definitely enhanced you learn them a lot better you then can put to practice the rest of your life and that that is one of the greatest gifts that, that sport certainly gave me that I didn't think I'd get that's fantastic
0: thank you very much Catherine I've really enjoyed the conversation and learnt a lot it's a pleasure
1: oh thanks Michael I've loved every minute thank you
0: thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks again to Dame Catherine Granger I'd love to hear your stories of change you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Michael Barber 9 there's also a book that accompanies this podcast Accomplishment it's available at all good booksellers This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and the rest of the team. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss these great game changers telling their stories of how to get things done.